The scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses one, uh, 4 through 10. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you here, and it's always an honor for me to be able to stand before you and preach from God's Word. I just want to say, this is very unnatural for me to hold a mic, so if I do things like this or this, or if I throw it at any point, just don't be alarmed. I'm, I'm doing my very best with this thing. Uh, but my, my name is David Duran, and I am the church planning resident here at DOXA. As many of you know, uh, the Duran family, along with others, uh, will soon be moving to the Boston metro area to begin the work of planting a church. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I want to emphasize uh, the last part of that statement there. Uh, when we move, the work is actually just getting started. And we're praying and trusting that God will bring the growth. Uh, now, originally the plan was to move to Massachusetts at the beginning of August. And I've been telling you all that for two and a half years. But recently, uh, Margo and I, along with the elders of our church, uh, we've decided to delay our arrival until the first of the year. Our church planning residency here at DOXA, it is a three-year residency, and we think uh, that it would be best for our development as a church planting family to complete the residency here in Myrtle Beach instead of on the ground in Massachusetts. Now, I want to point out to you guys, and, and just make sure you know, this doesn't change our overall timeline of when we hope to plant the church, um, but it does mean that we get to spend a few extra months here with our Doxa Church family. And, and for that, we are we're very grateful. Um, plus, as an added bonus, we get to move when it's 20 degrees outside. <laughs> And it gets dark at 4 in the afternoon. So, really, things can only improve from there, right? 
but on a serious note, uh, we don't want to rush our development as a church planning family. And our leadership here at DOXA has been so kind and encouraging to help us see that a few more months in Myrtle Beach, uh, it's not a setback. Rather, it is an opportunity for us to get ready, Lord willing, for a long, fruitful life in pastoral ministry. So please continue to pray for us. Uh, delaying our move does create some challenges for our family that we wouldn't have had uh, if we had moved in August, but we do feel confident that this is what the Lord wants, and this is where he's leading us. So continue to keep us in your prayers. If you have questions, please come up to me or Margo. Uh, we'd love to talk with you more about that. Well, there's your church planning update for me. Uh, let's pray together, and then we'll look at our text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are worthy of all of our worship. You're worthy of all our adoration. Your mercy and your kindness are astounding. We're undeserving of the patience that you show us. You satisfy the deep longings of our souls. We pray today that you would still, Lord Jesus, still our restless and anxious hearts. So many things invoke fear within us, Lord, and so often we feel like helpless sheep wandering along in the wilderness. We pray that today we would hear the voice of our chief shepherd, the one who makes us lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside still waters. Let us hear this morning from the one who restores our souls. Father, we acknowledge and we confess our sin to you. Our hearts are prone to wander and to latch onto other things for our peace and our joy and our contentment. We fail to love others the way we should. We're selfish with our time and with our talents. For these things and countless others, we ask for your forgiveness. We confess our sin to you, Lord. Thank you that when we call upon you, when we pray to you, you hear us. Thank you that you forgive us, Lord. Thank you that in Christ we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who knows what it's like to be tempted just like us, yet without sin. Let us, the people of God, cling tightly to the throne of grace. Thank you that as far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us who are your children. God, we pray that you would cause us to overflow with gratitude toward you and for all that you've done for us. Make us a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. May we truly be able to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. We celebrate knowing that you will complete the good work that you have begun in each of us. Now, Father, as we open your word together, I ask that you would make it come alive. By the power of your Spirit, give us eyes to see what's here. By the power of your Spirit, apply the truth that's here to our hearts. By the power of your Spirit, give us the strength and the courage to change. To put aside the sin that clings so closely. To, to run wholeheartedly after you. Father, I need your help today. I pray that you would help me to speak in a way that edifies every believer in this room. pray that you'd keep my mouth from error. 
Let my words decrease and yours increase, Lord Jesus. May you be honored and glorified today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight at 7 p.m. on NBC, a television show, Who Do You Think You Are? will make its series premiere. This isn't a new show. It's actually been around for some time. It got canceled for a couple seasons, but it's picked back up. I'm sure some of you have maybe even heard of this show. But essentially, what what this show does is it helps celebrities trace their, their family trees with the help of historians and experts. It's really a pretty fascinating show. People find out all sorts of things about their families and their histories that they really had no idea existed. They meet family members they didn't know existed. They visit countries that they didn't know that their family tree and their um, sort of their life connects with. Uh, The show, it's really one of those shows that kind of draws you in to the person's story. And they really have some some pretty big-name celebrities that are on the show. At least I, I think they're pretty big name. People like Kelly Clarkson, Smokey Robinson, Jerome Bettis, many other names that you've heard of have all been on the show, Who Do You Think You Are? The success of this show, it really parallels with the popularity of DNA-matching websites. I'm sure you've heard of them. Uh, Websites like 23andMe, Ancestry.com. And it seems to me, and I think the evidence supports this, that we've become more and more intrigued in wondering where it is that we come from. I don't mean to suggest that that's a bad thing. I don't think it is at all. But I can't help but think that part of this desire to know where it is that we come from comes from this nagging sense deep within that we really don't know who we are. There's a real existential angst weighing down the hearts of many people. We really don't know who we are. We don't know what we are. We don't know how to relate to people and to the world around us. And this doesn't just happen to to people out there. This happens right here in the church. Happens in in our church, Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know your spiritual family history? Do you know the way in which God word, God's Word describes who you are? In our passage this morning, the Apostle Peter, in part, is helping us to answer these type of questions. Uh, We're in a a unique kind of sermon series for the month of July where the messages you're going to hear each week, they don't necessarily build on one another the way they would if we were working our way through the book of the Bible. Instead, you're going to hear five different uh, standalone sermons, and Dale kicked that off for us last week, uh, from four different speakers. And our prayer is that you'll be edified from God's Word as each person up here presents and preaches from a passage of Scripture. And I have chosen this passage because I think Peter, in these very short verses, is speaking to something incredibly meaningful and particularly important for us today. I'd also like to mention that I I think far too often, Peter gets 
gets charactered in a negative light. Yes, sometimes Peter blurts out things when he shouldn't. He famously denies Jesus the night of, of his arrest. I've heard people refer to Peter as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. This presentation of Peter as a sort of lovable buffoon is really unfair and misleading in my opinion. Uh, many of us know the stories where Peter makes mistakes, but let's not forget that in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter is the first one to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. It's upon Peter's confession that Jesus says he will build his church. And while the historical evidence is inconclusive as to whether Peter was actually crucified upside down, we do know that he was most likely martyred in Rome by crucifixion. Peter was serious about following Jesus. Peter knew firsthand what it meant to live as a follower of Christ while living through suffering and persecution. 1 Peter is a letter written by Peter and to, to these people. This is how he describes them in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And those, those regions described are, are Roman provinces in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. And Peter is writing to the Christians in these areas in large part to strengthen and encourage them to stand strong in suffering. Persecution and suffering were being faced by the believers here. This wasn't like a state-sponsored uh, or, or official policy of the empire at this time to persecute Christians, but it was, it was local, it was sporadic, and it was happening. Um, but the suffering, the suffering experienced by these people was, was real, and they needed to be encouraged. And really, what Peter's doing through, throughout the book of 1 Peter is he's seeking to encourage the believers in, in two general areas. The first is in their Christian existence. He wants to remind his brothers and sisters in Christ who it is that they are. And this, this occupies his thought from 1 Peter 1.13 through chapter 2, verse 10, where we're going to conclude today. And the second part, Peter wants to encourage the believers in their behavior. He wants to, to spur them on to live in a manner worthy of Christ. And that's from verse 11 through the rest of Peter's letter. And our passage today is at the end of the, the first big chunk where Peter is describing the Christian existence. And it's intended to encourage and remind, strengthen Christians in who they are. And what Peter does here is he's, he's using different illustrations to get his point across. He wants to sort of paint a picture so the believers can, can see in their minds who, who it is that they are. And he's, he's really using two metaphors to describe the Christian. He also, in the, in the middle of our passage, provides a striking visual to show them who it is that they are not. And what I want to try to do this morning is follow Peter's uh, thought process, follow along with, with his illustrations, and let him, let him uh, remind all of us who are Christians who it is that we are. Brothers and sisters, let's be reminded of our spiritual history, of our family of origin. Let's be reminded who we are. And Lord willing, we'll be emboldened in our faith. So pay, it, pay special attention. Now that I've 
kind of given you that picture, pay special attention to Peter's language towards Christian existence. Let's look again at verses 4 to 6. Hopefully you have that in front of you. You can follow along as I read it. Special attention to Peter's language towards Christian existence. We're going to start in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. First, notice this strange metaphor that Peter uses to describe the first century Christians and also to describe us as well. He compares us to living stones. Living stones. What a strange thing for us to be compared to. A living stone. Stones aren't alive. They don't breathe. They don't grow. They can't move on their own. By no stretch of the imagination can a stone thought to be alive. Even some of you might remember the, uh, the pet rock craze in the 70s. People actually had pet rocks. I'm sure even those people knew that their stone was not actually alive. How is it possible for a stone to be living? And why would Peter use this sort of weird illustration? Really doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you have some familiarity with the Old Testament. One of the things that this illustration, and we're going to see it in a a bigger way in the next illustration that Peter uses is that Peter assumed that the believers spread across Asia Minor were familiar with the Old Testament. And this wasn't just Jewish uh, Christians who would have been steeped in the Old Testament writings. These were Gentile believers. And I want to make this quick point as an aside because the Old Testament has, has fallen on hard times in recent years. I've heard people, maybe you have as well, heard people say that the Old Testament really isn't that important People have used language basically saying that we can just sort of forget about the Old Testament. Let's just focus on the message of the New. Friends, let's be clear. You'll never fully understand the the richness and the message of the New Testament with the Gospel forming the heart of that message unless you see how it connects with the Old Testament. You'll notice a deeper richness to the New Testament when you understand the biblical family history that took place before. So there's my quick plug to take the Old Testament seriously. Let's get back to our living stone illustration. Look, the only way that stones can come alive is through a supernatural act of God. It's the only way. And in this case, living stones are alive because they've been made alive by the the living stone. Brothers and sisters, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the living stone. It's only through faith in the living Christ that cold, dead stones come alive. Jesus is the living stone. Don't miss this. It may seem elementary, but let's be reminded. Jesus is the living stone Because he is alive. 
Peter is looking at Psalm 118.22 to draw this language of, of Jesus being uh, a living stone or the cornerstone. And Peter, he loves this metaphor. He uses it multiple times. You, you remember um, in, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John, they're arrested and they're brought before the, the Jewish leaders? Remember that story? They got arrested because they, they healed a lame beggar and they're preaching the gospel. They're just sort of doing ordinary Christian stuff, right? Healing people, preaching the gospel. They're, they're pulled in by these leaders and Peter, talking about Jesus to them, he references Psalm 118.22. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Christian, because you have been united to Christ, the chief cornerstone by faith, been united to Christ by faith, you have been made alive with Him. Jesus is alive, not in just some spiritual or mystical way, but in actuality. He was brutally crucified on a Roman cross. He died a criminal's death, but now He is alive. Alive. That's not just something we celebrate on Easter or when it's convenient. We celebrate that every day of our lives. Jesus is alive. Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. And while we await the final resurrection that's going to come at the end, we are presently, don't miss this, we are presently alive with Christ. The Apostle Paul describes the Christians in Ephesus as being made alive together with Christ. To be alive with Christ is to have Christ's resurrection as our resurrection. And this secures our justification and our sanctification. To be alive with Christ is to taste and experience Him as true living water that satisfies the soul. It's to know Him as the bread of life. A life that has been resurrected with Christ. And a life that is alive with Christ has found Him to be, found Jesus to be, all satisfied. Now I think it's important for me to point out to you that verses 4 and 5, they're in the passive voice. And I'm not pointing that out to you just because I'm a Bible nerd. Um, there's, there's some significance here, and it helps us to understand what Peter is saying. So Peter, he's not, please hear this part, Peter is not commanding us to be like living stones. He's not commanding us to be built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood. These are not active imperatives here. These aren't commands from Peter. No, these are statements of our reality. These are statements of our reality. Don't hear commands in what Peter's saying. Don't be, at this point at least, don't be writing things down, thinking about what you need to do in order to achieve what Peter is saying. Hear this as who you are. Notice also how Peter reminds us that Jesus was rejected by men but in the sight of God, what does he say? Chosen and precious. Let's be reminded this morning that Jesus was a suffering servant. He was despised by many. He was rejected by far more people than he was accepted by. But in spite of all this, chosen 
and precious. Brothers and sisters, the life of Christ serves as a pattern for us who follow Him. Rejected by many, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. I was listening to a story a couple weeks back about a man in Germany who was an elder in his church, and also I believe he was a vice president in his, his company there. It's a pretty large company in Germany. And he preached a sermon at his church on the Christian worldview surrounding sexuality and marriage. And someone from his company, they heard that sermon, and they went to the, the powers that be and told them about the sermon that this vice president had given. And this guy, he was pulled in by his bosses at his company and told that he needed to take that sermon down because it actually reflected poorly upon the company. Uh, he didn't take it down, and I don't, I don't share that story to promote some sort of gloom and doom perspective on what's going to happen and where the world is headed. That's not interested in that. And history actually tells us that the church grows, it even thrives uh, during persecution. But all of us will face situations in our lives. Many of us face them every, every day where we need to remember that we may be rejected by people we may be rejected by people at work or friends or family members, but in the sight of God, hear this, Christian, in the sight of God, we are chosen and precious. Peter goes on to say, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now it's critical that we don't individualize what Peter is saying. Even though this, this clearly is not individualistic language, there's a temptation to hear, hear what Peter's saying and think, well, this is just only talking about me and me exclusively. I'm, I'm a living stone. I'm being built into a spiritual house. I'm, I'm the priesthood. I offer spiritual sacrifices. There's... There's certainly an individualistic element to what Peter is saying. But the force, the force of what Peter's saying is corporate. It's corporate. The spiritual house that's being described here is the church of Jesus Christ. And it's spiritual because it's indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We aren't just individually indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.16, you might be familiar with this passage, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The you there is plural. He's talking to the church. Friends, the Christian life is a together kind of life. It was never intended to be lived in isolation. And amazingly, and sinfully, I might add, we've manufactured a version of Christianity that says it's possible, to, even desirable, to live life as a Christian apart from the people of God. And the, the lone wolf or even the lone family version of Christianity that so many people are living today, it is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous. 
The Christian life, it is a pilgrimage. Christians are called exiles, sojourners. We're citizens of heaven and temporary residents here on this earth. That's, that's biblical language. That's how we are described. And uh, the Bible says that. Church fathers like Augustine and Gregory the Great, on further to a couple of my favorites, John Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards, they all use pilgrimage language to describe the Christian life. The Christian life has, has been understood as a journey to our heavenly home. But friends, this pilgrimage is dangerous. It's not like a leisurely stroll down to the beach or a nice trip up to Asheville in the fall to see the leaves and the mountains and enjoy the whole ride all the way up there. It's not like that. It's more like traveling along the Oregon Trail in the 1800s. There are things that can kill you around every turn. There's bandits and warriors and rattlesnakes. There's smallpox and cholera and all kinds of disease. If you tried to travel on the Oregon Trail by yourself, from wherever you start, Texas or Missouri or wherever, you're traveling out to Oregon, if you try to do that by yourself, the chances of you making it are virtually zero. People traveled together in large groups so they could help one another when they're struggling. One person points out the rattlesnake lying in the grass. Another person makes sure that the water is getting boiled before anybody drinks it. The whole group would bands together to fight off people who want to do harm uh, to members of the group. As dangerous as the Oregon Trail was to travel alone, it's got nothing, nothing on trying to live the Christian life apart from the local church. As Dale reminded us last week, we have a real spiritual enemy who seeks our destruction. Peter reminds his readers in 1 Peter 5.8, the devil is seeking someone to devour. Friends, this, this pilgrimage is dangerous. And we, we need one another. Amen? Plus, you really can't be faithful in following Jesus and not identify with his people. It's just really not possible to do. Living stones do not exist in isolation. They are being built up by God into a spiritual house. God is building his church upon the chief cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this poses an important question for us that Peter answers right away. The question, why is God building his church? Why is he doing this? The answer, right here in verse 5, to be a holy priesthood. We're going to get to verses 7 and 8 in a minute. But let's look down at verses 9 and 10. Let's sort of stay with this point that we're on right now. Verses 9 and 10, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
What Peter is saying here is absolutely stunning. There are tremendous implications for how we understand who we are as Christians individually and corporately in this passage. And there's so much sort of biblical theology and history we could trace with this verse. We're not going to go into all of it, but let me give you a taste. I mentioned earlier how important the Old Testament is for understanding the New. The reverse is also true as well. The New Testament helps us clearly understand what's being said in the Old. And this passage short couple of verses, is a great example of how the Bible fits together. Let me show you that really quickly. Listen to what God says to to Moses and to Israel, to his chosen people, in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. We're going all the way back. Listen to this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see what Peter is saying? This is amazing. Israel was God's royal priesthood. They were chosen by God, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They failed to keep God's law. And in doing so, they failed to be God's royal priesthood. Christian, but... Now, through faith in Jesus Christ, with Jesus as our high priest, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, God's people, the church, we are his kingdom of priests. That's a mic drop moment. Listen closely to what I'm saying here. The church doesn't replace Israel. doesn't replace Israel. But the promises made to Israel... All those promises in the Old Testament, particularly the promise to be a royal priesthood that we're looking at today, these promises are fulfilled in the church. Doxa Church, we as a local church, we perform our priestly duties as we mediate God's blessings to the nations. The purpose, the purpose of the priesthood is praise. We've been chosen. We're being built up so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. When you hear praise, don't just think about music and singing songs, although that is certainly a part of it. It's a part that I love. But a life of praise is a life of worship. It's a life of of mission. It's a life of evangelism and and obedience to Christ. To belong to the priesthood of all believers is to bless the world on behalf of our God. You know, that that was God's intention for human beings all along. Did you realize that? God created mankind in His image Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God created mankind in His image to praise and glorify Him. The Garden of Eden is actually where our priesthood status began. But the first priests, Adam and Eve, they failed. The Levitical priesthood throughout the Old Testament failed. God's people failed in their priestly responsibility. 
But brothers and sisters, our status as the royal priesthood of God, it is recovered in Jesus Christ. Christian, do you understand that your status in Christ makes you part of his royal priesthood? That reality should shape in a big way how you view your Christian existence. How might you bless the world on behalf of our God? How might you bless Myrtle Beach or Conway or Myrtle's Inlet, Coastal Carolina, wherever it is that you live? How might you bless these places on behalf of God? Pray and ask the Lord what he would have of you. Pray and ask him. And remember before anything else, praise, a life of praise that blesses the nations on behalf of God. It's aimed at glorifying God and showing thankfulness towards Him. I'm going to say that again. A life of praise is aimed at glorifying God and showing thankfulness towards Him. Church, Jesus, Jesus is either the one who makes us alive and builds us up, the one who gives us the priestly robes and a new identity through union with Him. He's either that or He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Look at verses 7 and 8. So the honor, which we've talked about, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Those who trust in Jesus, those who trust and, and come to the living stone rejected by men, they enter into the family of God. Christ is God's honored and chosen stone. It's only through trusting in him and in his death and resurrection on our behalf that we escape the righteous judgment of God. It's the only way. And because God is loving, He must also be just. God's justice is an extension of His love. And part of His justice includes His punishing of sin. But in His mercy, in His mercy, the triune God became incarnate in the person of Jesus. And He took the punishment that we deserve and secured the eternal victory that we never could. If you don't know Jesus, not know about Him or heard the story that He died and rose again. No, if you don't know Him as the living water that gives life to your soul, my prayer is that you would experience that. That you would turn from your sin. That you would repent. And you would trust in Jesus and Him alone for your salvation. I pray that you would be made alive in Christ. I also, I want to make a call this morning to Christians who haven't been baptized. Here's, just hear me out here. It's through, it's through faith that we enter into the family of God and become part of His royal priesthood. It's through faith that we do that. But it's at our baptism where we receive our priestly robes. In baptism, we're not only showing that we've been united to Christ in His death and resurrection, but we're 
publicly showing that we've been united to the family of God that is the church. Not just the universal church somewhere, that we've been united to the, the local church. If you're a Christian who's not been baptized, my prayer for you is that you'll, you'll be obedient to Jesus. That you will you'll go public with your faith. And that you'll receive your priestly robes. You're already a part of God's family. You're already a part of God's family. Why not let the world know? Why not let them know? Be baptized. Let me close here by asking one of the questions that I posed at the beginning of the message here. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Exile, pilgrim, sojourner, yes. But also chosen and precious. Living stones being built up in a royal priesthood mediating the blessings of God. We're going to take communion here in a minute. And, you know, communion really is a meal for pilgrims and exiles, uh, if you think about it. Uh, communion is directly connected to the Passover in Exodus 12. And you'll remember that that meal came to a people on the move, right? When Jesus and his disciples took communion for the first time in the upper room, they're on the go as Jesus was getting ready to be arrested and crucified. And each week, when we take this meal together, and we're remembering what Christ has done for us, uh, and through faith, we're, we're being strengthened for our journey as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So come, receive this, this pilgrim food that strengthens us in our inner being through faith in Jesus Christ. Brother and sisters, brothers and sisters, be strengthened today in your faith. And once you come forward, you'll receive uh, the wafer and the juice. And just a reminder, please refrain from taking those uh, right away. Uh, I'll come up afterwards after we sing a song and we'll, we'll take the elements together. So let's pray, and then we'll continue to worship. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have made us alive with Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are building your church. Thank you for the privilege that in Christ we mediate your blessings to the nations. Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. And help us first to, to clearly understand who it is that we are. And help us not to just keep that in our minds, but help us to live that out as well. I pray for your help in doing that, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, show us. Remind us who we are and show us where you'd have us go. Father, we pray that you would bless the rest of our time in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.